I'm Luke. I'm John. Brilliant. I mean, you're not bad. Scorcio. Why are you being so irritating? Because today we're looking at sketch shows on Cracking TV. They spent their whole lives watching TV. Now they're sharing their opinions with you. Because now they want to have some fun with a channel that is all brand new. Get comfy and without further ado, they'll choose the shows that you want to view. It's time to change the channel to Luke and John Cracking TV. Luke and John Cracking TV. Welcome to Cracking TV. We're Luke and John and we've worked behind the scenes in television for nearly 50 years between us, trying to crack its secret. We're on a mission to create the dream schedule for our own network, Cracking TV. Each episode we'll be talking about classic shows from a particular genre, picking one to fill a slot in our schedule. We'll be taking it in turns to be the commissioner and the pitcher. The pitcher will bring a number of shows in the hope of scoring that big commission. However, the commissioner has already got a first-rate show in mind. The pitcher desperately wants one of his shows to win and avoid the embarrassment of being thrown out of the commissioner's office. This week, I'm the commissioner. John, thanks for coming in. I've asked you to pitch some sketch shows. I have an open slot. Please attempt to fill it. You want a sketch comedy show, and I've interpreted that as a true sketch show. So I've excluded, for example, The League of Gentlemen, perhaps controversially because it is an excellent show. It is. And it's difficult to categorise it elsewhere. But having thought long and hard about it, I would put it more in the category of sitcom. Okay. And there are other examples of shows that I've excluded because I think they might fit better in other episodes of this podcast. So not the nine o'clock news, for example. We'll be saving that for a satire show. Yeah. So the choices that I've brought for you today, Mr. Commissioner, three of them are from the 1990s. One of them is from the early 2000s. Okay. Of course, that ages me and some people will find it controversial that I've looked at such a narrow band. But actually, I think it's a golden age for TV comedy sketch shows, and I think the winner should come from that era. That's bold up front. One thing I'll say is that one particular broadcaster is severely overrepresented, and we can talk about that later. Well, as in every show is from one broadcaster? Yes, exactly that. That's sort of overrepresented. So what's your first show? I'm going to open with what I think is a very strong contender for the slot, the fast show. It is definitely a sketch show. It's a sketch show, and it's very, very funny. Will you grant me that to begin with? It is very, very funny. I will grant you that as a starting point, yes. Okay, cool. Probably don't have to say any more then, but I will. Will it be a short show if you don't say any more? <laughs> it was created by Paul Whitehouse and Charlie Higson, both of whom had written for Harry Enfield and for Reeves and Mortimer, but now they wanted their own show. Both excellent writers and performers. Indeed. The idea was that it would be a very fast-paced show and it would be based on repeating jokes and catchphrases. Do you think that might be a little lazy, just repeating things over and over again? Well, how many of them can you remember off the top of your head? Well, obviously quite a lot. Yeah? Suits you, sir? Yeah. Scorchio? Yeah. This week I've been mostly eating... Oh, bugger. Brilliant. Where's me washboard? Arse. I'll get me coat. Very, very drunk. Does my bum look big in this? Yeah, it does, I'm afraid. That's all right. Young people like to be able to fill out a pair of jeans these days. Nice. Great. Which was nice. You ain't seen me right. Very much like making love to a beautiful woman. <laughs> yes. Right, there's loads and loads of them, and they make you giggle right from the start. It's a long time ago, 1994. Don't you feel old? <laughs> yeah, well, definitely. 
There have been a couple of revivals, but core years, 1994 to 1997. An absolutely fantastic cast. We've already mentioned Paul Whitehouse and Charlie Higson, but also Arabella Weir, John Thompson, Carolina Hearn, an absolute genius. Indeed. Simon Day, Mark Williams. Many of the cast were also writers on the show. Other writers included Dave Gorman, who went on to success in his own right. With lots of PowerPoints. That's right. Craig Cash, who of course went on to write The Royal Family with Carolina Hearn and starred in it with her. And Arthur Matthews and Graham Linehan, of whom more later. Right. But the thing about the catchphrases being irritating that you asked about. Oh, no, no, I didn't say they were irritating. Oh, you said it was lazy. I was questioning, is it lazy that you just rely on the catchphrase? Do they just rely on the catchphrase? I mean, personally, I would find with Harry Enfield that it was sometimes a bit annoying and a bit lazy, just using the catchphrase as the whole joke. There is a particular Harry Enfield sketch that is why you might think that, though. Which one's that? The loads of money. Well, no, I think a bit close to home. Oh, the Scousers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think the Fast Show, although it had that, it didn't suffer from it because the jokes are strong and because the performances were extremely funny and actually quite layered and textured and nuanced. People who had watched Harry Enfield the night before and then ran around the streets or the workplaces shouting loads of money or calm down, calm down, all the rest of it. Knobheads who were big Harry Enfield fans, they ruined Harry Enfield's programmes for me. And you could see how that could easily have happened to the Fast Show. And the Fast Show definitely did encourage that sort of repetitive behaviour, but also it parodied those sorts of knobheads in the character of Colin Hunt. I'm an alien! <laughs> Are you really, Colin? I'm an alien. Oh, did you watch it last night? Watch what? I'm an alien. No, I don't watch it. Oh, you must! It's the best sketch show that's been on for years. It's fantastic. No, I was watching the other side of Tessa. Ah, well, there's a new character on it last night, Mr. Pork. (laughs) Pork! Is that pork? Where's the pork? Hello, have you got the pork? Is it in here? Oh, where's the pork? Porka! There's the pork! <laughs> now, like I say, Colin, I watched the other side with my wife Tessa, yeah. <laughs> Program about wildlife, about stag beetles. No, it's really, really good. They've got these massive antlers, really big, and they fight each other and gouge stuff out of each other's bodies. It's incredible. Pork! Is that pork? Piss off, Colin. <laughs> so they're taking the piss out of catchphrase based sketch shows, though, which I think Indeed. is an excellent bit of self knowledge. It's very knowing, isn't it? Yeah. And, and actually, what they're pointing out is a true phenomenon, that thing of dickheads in the office, assuming you've seen something. Nobody like that in the place where I currently work, I hasten to add. Well, us. Yeah, I mean, yes, us, doing Alan Partridge quotes all the time. Yeah, God, why was I not even sufficiently self-aware to realise that that's exactly who we are? That's depressed the shit out of me. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> so the Fast Show, although it had those repetitive things, the cult status to it, Um, the silliness to it. There was a texture to it and a depth. Maybe the best example of that is the characters of Ted and Ralph. Do you remember those? I do indeed. An impoverished, youngish English aristocrat, Ralph, is secretly in love with his much older Irish groundsman. The comedy comes from the discomfort of Ralph's attempts to connect with Ted and Ted's awkward, embarrassed silences. But brilliant bit of writing from the aforementioned Arthur Matthews and Graham Linehan, of whom more later, and brilliant performances from Paul Whitehouse and Charlie Higson. The very best of those sketches is probably this one. Ted. Ted, there's something I need to speak to you about. I nominate Mr Mayhew. <laughs> I'm sorry? No, no, no! Ah, no, forfeit, forfeit. You've got to put a vegetable in front of each word in the right order. Yes, I'm sorry, I really have no idea what... Ah, no, no, no! Forfeit, forfeit. 
Tomato you, aubergine have, potato two, turnip say, carrot the, asparagus right, broccoli vegetables. Tomato <laughs> <laughs> oh. or aubergine, it's potato a, turnip forfeit. It's a drinking game, sir. Ted, I really do need. <laughs> Not tonight, please. Go on, sir. Go on. Go on. It'll be a bit fun, sir. Tomato. Ted, aubergine, your potato, wife's turnip dead. <laughs> it's dark, of course. Yes. But it's very funny. It is funny. I might sound contradictory here in a way, and obviously I was being provocative when I was saying it is just lazy relying on catchphrases, because of course it's more than that. But Ted and Ralph in particular, they tended to be the slightly longer form sketches, and however clever it is, and you're right, it is clever, I did get to the point where I was a bit bored with Ted and Ralph by the time they spinned it off into its own show. One of the things about the fast show is it's not actually that fast. I'm not sure that the average length of the sketches is any quicker than other sketch shows. I think they set off with the idea of a sketch show for the MTV generation where things would move extremely fast. But really, I mean, they take two and a half or three minutes, which is probably standard. Though I suppose between the sketches, they had things like the, hi, I'm Ed Winchester. They did have those quick bits. The Ted and Ralph sketches were deliberately slow because they build on those awkward, embarrassed silences, which just have to go on for a long time. Yeah. The one that we just played actually has a joke in it, which usually wasn't the case with the Ted and Ralph sketches, I think. Yeah, no, that's true. It was obviously mainly focusing on the awkwardness of the relationship. So many of the characters and the sketches had lives outside of the show itself. A lot of them were used in advertising, which I'm not particularly praising as a necessarily good thing, although fair play to anyone who's got to make money. It showed the reach that the show had and the characters had and the catchphrases had across the culture. Do you have a particular favourite sketch? I don't know that I have a favourite sketch per se. Or set of characters. Probably my, my favourite setup is the guy in the pub talking to two friends and the two friends have diametrically opposed opinions mm. and the guy in the middle will constantly change his mind to agree with the last person who spoke. So he wants to be friends with both. Yeah, and he doesn't have a particularly strong opinion or anything. And he finds mm. them both persuasive and he doesn't realise that he's changing his mind every 30 seconds. That's something that sometimes I can relate to. And certainly I know people who uh, might have changed their minds quite that quickly, but certainly within weeks without really realising that they've they totally shifted yeah. their position. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I always enjoyed that one. I always liked Channel 9. Yeah. Well, I suppose partly because it's a TV parody and obviously Scorchio, but all the other bits they did on it. Chris Waddle being in the news every week. Boutros, Boutros Gali, meaning goodbye. What's the underlying joke there? I think it, it's us as Brits abroad not having a clue exactly. about the content that we're watching and, and hearing everything as, as nonsense. And then picking out the occasional word that you think you understand, but you probably don't. Yeah. I mean, Scorchio obviously makes sense. I mean, it is funny. It verges sometimes a little bit on saying, oh, isn't Spanish culture absurd? Isn't their yes. TV terrible? Which is probably not the most comfortable position to be in. But that, that core joke of when you go abroad and you switch on the TV and they could be saying anything, but isn't it funny when you pick out the odd phrase here and there that you understand is a funny idea, definitely. Yes, I mean, when I was quoting it just then, I deliberately was editing myself to not say a couple of things. You think, is it appropriate to say that anymore? Tastes have changed in comedy since the 1990s, which is something we'll definitely talk about a little bit more as this show goes on. Definitely. 
But overall, I commend the fast show to you. The fact that we do still use these catchphrases to this day does show how successful it was and how it's sort of implanted itself within people's consciousness. Strong contender then. I'm in with a chance. Well, I, I don't know if I'd go that far. You, Too soon to say. You don't know what I've got uh, in mind already. But no, it is a strong contender. That's fair. What's your second contender? It's Goodness Gracious Me. Okay. This was originally on BBC Radio 4 from 1996 to 1998. And then it moved to BBC Two on television from 1998 to 2001. Yeah. The cast were four British Asian actors. Sanjeev Bhaskar, Kulvinder Gia, Mira Sayal and Nina Wadaya. Yeah. The show explored British Asian culture in all its aspects. At the core of it was the conflict and integration between traditional South Asian culture and modern British life. Yes, it's a very interesting perspective, isn't it? Challenging in some ways, obviously very funny. Yeah, definitely. Um, there were probably two fundamental underlying ideas. One of them was sketches that made fun of South Asian stereotypes. But from the perspective of people who understood those communities... yeah. There was a man who tells his son that everything comes from India. That was one of my favourite characters. Including William Shakespeare, Superman, Jesus Christ. He always had some justification for why they were Indian. Shakespeare lives in a very small house with multiple kids. Exactly. There was always uh, some justification for for these non-Indian characters fitting into what he would see as Indian archetypes. Obviously, it was so he could brag. He wanted his son to feel proud of being Indian, so he would claim absolutely everything for Indian heritage. Yes. Another character was the mother who claims she can make any meal at home for nothing as long as she has a small aubergine. <laughs> Always needs a small aubergine. And that's, I think, before aubergine took on its modern meaning. Or maybe they're responsible for the modern meaning. Maybe that's when we all became so excited by aubergine. Yeah. And then there was the, the Coopers, who are nouveau riche and claim to have no Indian heritage or culture whatsoever, even though they clearly are of Indian heritage. Yeah. So that was idea number one, making fun of South Asian stereotypes. Idea number two was reversing the roles to view the British from a South Asian perspective. For example, when we saw a group of Asian people going for an English. Classic. So they go into an English restaurant and they ask for the blandest thing on the menu and everything he offers, they want something even more bland until in the end, I think they settle on scampi. <laughs> Very well observed. Exactly. So being disrespectful of the culture and not understanding and not making any attempt to be polite. That technique could be quite effective at helping some of us more obtuse white English people see things from the perspective of Asian British people. I've got an example of that, actually. Okay, I call this meeting of the Indian Broadcasting Corporation to order. I've invited you all down here today to introduce you to our new head of ethnic minority programming, Mr. John Britt. John will be making sure that our representation of uh, English people will be tickety-boo. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, I've got a few suggestions. Well, glad to hear that you've settled in all right. I call this meeting over. Hang, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. I haven't actually finished. Oh, God, here we go. The British community in India is totally underrepresented in the media here. Uh, now, hang on a minute. I have to disagree, right? You've got that weekly magazine programme. Oh. What's it oh. called? Uh, Network West. Yeah. I mean, I saw a brilliant item on last week's show, uh, The Morris Dancers of Ambala. <laughs> but it was on at six o'clock on a Sunday morning. Why do they get up so early? Walk the dog, I think. <laughs> We're not all Morris dancers, you know. 
That's just a stereotype. And why is it whenever we see a Brit on TV, he's either a tourist or a diplomat? And why can't we play doctors? Or, I don't know, shopkeepers? <laughs> So in no way representative how broadcasting works in this country, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, we, we shouldn't need to be hit over the, the head with these parallels and asked to think, how would you feel if the shoe was on the other foot? But sometimes we do need to be confronted with that. And I think doing it in a comical way, very effective. Couldn't agree more. If you can see the funny and make the joke out of it, it's so effective. Exactly right. And what they were parodying in that sketch about representation in the media and the idea that, oh, there is a programme for you. It's on at 6am on a Sunday morning. Yeah. Really, until Goodness Gracious Me was on TV, that is where we were. And there's a question of whether we have gone very much further since Goodness Gracious Me and whether there's still a very, very long way for us to go, to which I'm sure the answer is, of course, we still need to make vast improvements from where we are. But it was profoundly important, I think, in the 1990s that Asian writers and performers were given a prime time slot on BBC television to make mainstream programming. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Where's the programme that gets more universal appeal? Because that's obviously a key part of Goodness Gracious Me, is it did have wide appeal. It was funny. It was entertaining. Everybody could watch it and relate to it because it showed families and workplaces that we could all relate to, even if the cultural practices weren't our cultural practices. Yeah. It's also important, I think, that it represented a wide range of South Asian communities. So it was multi-religious, multilingual. It was Pakistani culture, Bangladeshi culture, Indian culture. It wasn't a narrow view of what the South Asian British experience was, which arguably that's where we've narrowed in more on. We think of South Asians in Britain and it, it's particular issues that are represented, it's particular communities that are represented, whereas Goodness Gracious Me was extremely wide ranging. And I, and I think it, it sort of introduced catchphrases that yeah everybody can say, and I'm thinking in particular, kiss my chuddies, <laughs> which is a brilliant line. Yeah, it is. It was, it was a really very, very good show, and I wouldn't commend it on the basis of it being groundbreaking in terms of uh, multicultural understanding alone. Okay. I would only bring it to you if I was happy to say this is an excellent TV comedy sketch show, a really, really funny show. No, exactly. I, I completely get that. And of course, it has that status just because it's funny. The fact it's doing other stuff as well it really did do a lot to get lots of people thinking but fundamentally it deserves its place in a show about sketch shows because it's a bloody funny sketch show exactly right so yeah that's my second pitch to you goodness gracious me another strong contender i would argue fast show and goodness gracious me are definitely strong contenders i am a little worried that you're picking shows from a very tight era though that may count against you uh, we'll see what else you've got in a bit but I think it's time that I revealed the show that I've already got in mind. Okay, I'm a bit worried about this. I think there is one sketch show that rises above them all that has basically defined comedy. Is it Little and Large? Uh, it's not Little and Large. I'm sure we'll talk about them on a future double act show, although good luck to whoever's pitching that. I'm thinking Monty Python's Flying Circus. Okay, you've brought a gun to a fist fight. The Beatles of comedy, absolutely groundbreaking, intelligent, hilarious, as you say, changed the rules, brought some of the counterculture and satire and surrealism into the mainstream. Yeah, all of the above. I mean, I basically don't need to make the case, do I? You've just commissioned it for me. 
It's going to be hard for me to fight against, but I'm still going to give it a good go. But go on, tell me exactly why you think this is the show for the slot. Well, I think the reasons you have just said. It's interesting that the Pythons wanted to make a show that was unclassifiable. To a certain extent, they succeeded, except that there is now the term Python-esque to describe their brand of humour. So in that sense, they completely failed. Of course, the Pythons, Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, Michael Palin and Terry Gilliam. Carol Cleveland was sort of the unofficial seventh Python. The show grew out of a number of shows prior to that, particularly Oxford and Cambridge Reviews. But in terms of TV, there were two shows that had aired prior to Python that are worth mentioning. The first is, at last, the 1948 show. That was Cleese and Chapman, alongside Tim Brooke Taylor, Marty Feldman and uh, Amy MacDonald. That was made by David Frost's production company for Rediffusion. Got two series. It's probably the most famous sketch is The Four Yorkshiremen. Oh, yeah. Uh, a sketch that Python, in some of their live shows, performed. Uh, and then the other show, also Rediffusion, but uh, actually a kid's show that went out at 5pm in the evening was Do Not Adjust Your Set. And that was Idle Jones and Palin, uh, animations by Terry Gilliam, also one of David Jason's first shows. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So there's some very interesting connections between the Pythons and lots of other groups. The Goodies are adjacent. Yeah. The two Ronnies are adjacent because of Cleese's work. That was the week that was. And the Frost Report. Oh, yes. And David Frost himself. It's an interesting period of British comedy. You'll note that virtually every one of those names, they're all male. Virtually all of them are Oxbridge. So you can argue perhaps it wasn't entirely diverse, but they do have, I think, very credible comedy chops. We can't argue against the comedy chops of the Pythons. No. Obviously, there's the work of the show itself that we're talking about, Monty Python's Flying Circus. There's the films that they made, and then there's the individual comedies that they went on to to make themselves, Ripping Yarns, obviously Faulty Towers. Huge comedy legacy. I'm definitely focusing on Flying Circus, and as it happens, that is my favourite part of the Python oeuvre. I definitely prefer the TV series to the films, which I think for people our age, that's probably not normal. People our age tend to know the films more than they know the TV series. Yeah. It's what they were doing on TV that I really liked. In fact, I have an example of this. Now on BBC television, a choice of viewing. On BBC Two, a discussion on censorship between Derek Hart, the Bishop of Woolwich, and a nude man. And on BBC One, me telling you this. (laughs) So that was done with the BBC One globe in the background, completely messing with TV. They'd often not play the opening titles until halfway through the programme. They'd have false endings. Obviously, most sketches didn't really have a conclusion. They just went from one thing into another, really messing about with the format. And I suppose the first show that really did that, actually, we should acknowledge, was Spike Milligan and the stuff he did with Q5, which was just before Python, although then there was a massive gap between Q5 and Q6. But absolutely groundbreaking, the stuff the Pythons were doing. Does it still work as a comedy show in terms of just sitting in front of it and being made to laugh? I think so. I mean, obviously, there were sketches that died. I mean, that is true on any sketch show. Yeah, definitely. Perhaps slightly more often on Python because they were so experimental. Yeah. But then you have sketches that just killed. But I think before we get into some examples of sketches, I just want to pick up on how the show is commissioned. So as you picked up on that clip I just played, it was on BBC One. Most people assume that Python went out on BBC Two. Yes, I would have assumed that. But no, it was a BBC One commission. 
And even more interesting, 40 Towers, people assume, went out on BBC One. 40 Towers was BBC Two. Right. They're kind of the opposite to what you expect. And how it got commissioned is quite interesting. So the Pythons had gone into TV Centre. I think they were sort of rounded up by Barry Took, who was sort of the producer that had introduced them. And they'd gone to see BBC head of comedy, Michael Mills. And he sort of quizzed them a bit. He said, well, what are you going to call the show? Well, they didn't know. What's it going to be? Will there be music in it? We don't know. We hadn't really thought that through. Will there be guest artists? Uh, well, we don't think so. Well, will there be a different theme each week? Well, we don't think so. So you'd think the pitch didn't go that well, but his response was, OK, I'll give you 13 shows, but that's all. <laughs> that was a different time, wasn't it? I suppose they did go in there with some pedigree. Well, and of course. They'd proven their ability, but nonetheless, a different time in TV, I suppose, when um, commissioners could afford to take those sorts of risks. Will we get to 13 episodes of this podcast is a key question. Absolutely. The first episode went out on BBC One Sunday the 5th of October 1969 at 10.50, and the show had replaced a late-night religious programme, which caused some members of BBC staff to threaten to strike. BBC management argued that actually it was better to move the religious show because it meant clergymen didn't have to work on their busiest day. <laughs> <laughs> that averted a strike. 10.50pm is actually quite late on a Sunday. Yeah, that is the counter to why it was on BBC One and how it got yeah. that commission. It, it got a late night experimental slot. And so it lasted four series, 45 episodes in total. I think the fourth series did actually go out on BBC Two rather than one. There was no John Cleese in that final series? No, there? he'd got fed up with some of the repetition. John Cleese has become a bit of a cantankerous bastard. Yeah. But obviously he is an exceedingly funny person. Yeah. And only wanted to do absolutely fresh new stuff. And you saw that with 40 Towers only getting two series. Yeah. But some of the sketches... Which sketches do you think of? Lumberjack. Yes. And uh, Dead Parrot. Of course. I always liked one where a sort of weak and feeble man and his wife went to a marriage guidance counsellor and the wife ended up having sex with said counsellor behind a curtain. Whilst the man was sat there having to wait for them to finish. Exactly. That was a good sketch. Yeah. The Spanish Inquisition. Oh, yes. Nobody expects a Spanish Inquisition. The Fish Slapping Dance. Oh, yeah. Film just up the road from you. There's a burger and ribs restaurant just near where I live, and it's got a plaque on the wall saying that the Fish Slapping Dance was filmed nearby. Wow. Well, we should go there and we should do the sketch, although you're the one that's being thrown in the water. Okay, fine. I really like their parody game show, Blackmail. Yeah, I remember that. Someone was being threatened with an embarrassing secret, and the price to stop it from being revealed kept going up and up, right? Yeah, that's the one. Should we play an example? Oh, yeah, please. Welcome to Blackmail. Today's lucky contestant is a JF from Liverpool. Oh, God. I would like to be paid before the end of this segment £50. Otherwise, I will reveal the name of the food JF cannot pronounce. Mm-hmm. We don't judge. We just want your money. Mm, no, I'm not. I can't. I'm not giving you £50. Oh, you admit it's you. I mean, I didn't say who it was. <laughs> I just said it was a JF. <laughs> Well, I think it was probably quite clear who it was. Um, it's going up to £75. No, I'm not paying. £100? Nope. Well, if you're not going to pay, I'm going to have to reveal that the food John can't pronounce is couscous. I just have a mental block. Every time I'm about to say it, I get anxiety. It's even worse than quinoa. I didn't have to reveal it. You could have paid me £50. That's true. I did have a choice. I could have paid you £50. 
Possibly my favourite sketch, though, is this one, which is actually even better in the live shows when Cleese inserts more fruity language. Albatross! <laughs> Albatross! Albatross! Two chalk please. I haven't got chalk horses. I only got the albatross. Albatross! What, what flavour is it? It's a bird, isn't it? It's a bloody seabird. It's not any bloody flavour. Albatross! You get wafers with it. Of course you don't get bloody wafers with it. Albatross! How much is it? Ninepence. Have two, please. I think there's so much to like in that. I mean, it's such a short sketch. It's so surreal. Obviously, the confused customer that wants to know if it comes with wafers uh, and then gets told it doesn't. But then he goes ahead and buys it anyway, even though he knows it's rubbish. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is a funny idea. Again, I mean, we've talked about catchphrases and how they can become irritating. And certainly it's true because Python was so popular and because it's been around such a long time. Some of those exclamations are overused and tired now, I think. But again, you can't pin that on the show itself, which was, by definition, extremely fresh, risk-taking and new when it went out. And we have to put ourselves here in the minds of people who were watching it for the first time and how mind-blowing it must have been. When I saw it for the first time, when Flying Circus was repeated in the early 90s, it was mind-blowing to me that there was this amazing show. And then when you realise by that point it was already more than 20 years old and it was still fresh and funny. Yeah. They had their characters they called the Pepper Pots. These were the women they dressed up as. Oh, yes. And then they had the, shall we say, less intelligent people, the Gumbies. You could argue that those two sets of characters were punching down a little bit, perhaps the Gumbies more than the Pepper Pots. Maybe the Pepper Pots, some of that you could see as a bit misogynistic. Yeah. I think in general, though, it's held up very well, thankfully. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I think, as you say, there are subjects on which society's opinions have moved on but you don't get the sense from python that they are trying to be mean and divisive which you certainly do get in some 1970s comedy that's just as well given the influence it's had on british comedy in everything that i'm pitching to you today there is to a greater or lesser degree a monty python influence yeah can't deny that at all To be honest, any of the criticisms that I would make of the Pythons or anything that I don't like about them really comes from their much, much later years when they were much older and they were no longer doing as much work. And even then, it's only one or two of them. Yeah, so it's not actually related to Flying Circus at all. It's stuff they've gone on to do. Exactly right. As Python, they, of course, have released a number of films. Their first film was, and now for something completely different, which was an anthology of sketches from the show. They reshot the sketches. They really sort of upped the production value. The one that really sticks out in my mind is the funniest joke in the world sketch. Oh, yeah. Which is one of my favourite sketches. Just such a brilliant idea that there's a joke so funny that you'll die laughing from it (laughs) so you can deploy it in a war. Then, of course, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah. Monty Python's Life of Brian, very controversial at the time. Yes, very controversial. I mean, that is a fantastic film on its own. It stands alone as a fantastic piece of work, I would say. Yeah, totally. Meaning of Life, of course, was their last film. They've been on a number of tours, and I got to see them when they were at the O2 in 2014. And how was that? It was very good. I mean, the O2 is obviously not the best venue for comedy. Yeah. Well, it's not the best venue for most things, to be honest, from the Millennium Experience onwards. 
But it was obviously amazing to see five of the six, well, and Carol Cleveland, so I suppose you should say six of the seven. Obviously, it's terribly sad, you know, I'll never get to see Graham Chapman. But knowing that it was the last time that you were likely to ever see them perform, and of course, as it turns out, with um, Terry Jones's sad passing, we'll never see them perform again. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't just full of thousands and thousands of middle-aged men in novelty t-shirts shouting spam at the stage. Well, it was certainly full of middle-aged men, that is true. It wasn't like people were just shouting the lines out. Oh, good. That's Monty Python. Yeah, I mean, I'm worried, obviously, that Monty Python is the daddy of all sketch shows and it's going to be very hard for me to compete. I think it is. But what have you got next to try and compete? So here, I'm just going full in on funny it's big train big funnies two series of big train there were one in 1998 and then quite a long gap the second series was in 2002 it was created by the writers of father ted who also wrote ted and ralph on the fast show so they obviously liked the name ted yes arthur matthews and graham linehan of whom more later it's surprising to me that big train never attracted a huge audience or a dedicated cult following It just seemed to come and go, and people rarely talk about it. It's weird, because it's exactly in my wheelhouse. You know, it's a natural point of all the stuff I'd watched in the 90s, whether it was those repeats of Python, repeats of Not the Nine O'Clock News, my all-time favourite comedy, The Day to Day, through a bit of Partridge, a bit of Lee and Herring, all these different shows. And then you get Big Train at the end of the decade. And I do love it, but it's a show I've gone back to watch, not something that I picked up on at the time. Oh, that's interesting. I remember when I first saw it, I think I saw a trailer for it on BBC Two, and the trailer made me laugh really, really hard. And that trailer ended up being the very first sketch in the very first episode, which I've got for you here, actually. Excuse me? Sorry. Um, do you speak English? No, I don't. Sorry. Oh. Um, my car's broken down, and I wondered if you could tell me where to find a garage. Yeah, well, you know, that's that's wasted on me. I don't I don't understand what you're saying. You don't speak any English at all? Not a word, no. It's one of those things, really. I wish I paid more attention in school, but... Um, excuse me, excuse me. Sorry. Do you speak any English? English? No. <laughs> What's the problem? I don't know. I, I can't understand that. Hi. Uh, my car's broken down, and I need to find a garage. No, I'm sorry. I didn't understand that at all. <laughs> all right, well, thanks. Tell you what, if you go down that way, about half a mile, there's a village. There might be somebody there that speaks English. Thanks, anyway. I can speak English. <laughs> so can I. <laughs> yeah, so the, the cast was largely unknown when that first series went out. But it's Simon Pegg, Mark Heap, Kevin Eldon, Amelia Bulmore, Julia Davis. Though the two female performers were replaced for the second series with Rebecca Front... Tracy Ann Oberman and Catherine Tate. I mean, it is pretty much a who's who of comedy, isn't it? A-list comedy performers in the UK and in Simon Pegg's case, in Hollywood. Yeah. These were the great comic performers of the generation, all much better known for things that they've done subsequently. But in Big Train, they were absolutely fantastic. It was a brilliant show, really well written and really well performed. And also really well shot. It was shot entirely on location, on film, and then shown to a studio audience later to generate the laugh track. But really high production values. No, it comes across. They obviously have certain ideas that they bring back week after week. Like there's the monks that you see almost every week in that first series. But it's fair enough because the context of the sketch changes. So it's fresh ideas each week. There were lots of fresh ideas every week. 
As you say, there were some recurring sketches. There was Barry Davies commentating on a staring contest. Yes. But for the most part, it was new jokes, not catchphrases, good punchlines. It was a real step away from the fast show. Yeah. And basically, the underlying idea was you take a seemingly ordinary situation and you inject the surreal. So there's one sketch where there's a woman receiving hypnotherapy to give up smoking. And then when the first two attempts at hypnotherapy don't work, the therapist calls in his colleague who looks and acts like a villain from a Victorian penny dreadful and says, before we start, I must inform you that I am an evil hypnotist. (laughs) Yes. And then he cures her of her smoking and Mm. that works. And then he does a big evil. Ah, it worked, it worked. And that's the end of the sketch. Uh, That's the extent of his evilness. Yeah, exactly. He self-identifies as an evil hypnotist and that's that. Mm. So some really simple ideas done really well. Here's a good example of that. Um, Everyone, can I have your attention, please, just for a moment? Thank you very much for your patience. Um, I think you know what this is about. The office manager. The decision has been reached, and it is Tom Henderson. No way! I cannot believe it. The guy is a wanker. Yep, Okay. Okay. I know he's not a popular decision, um, but I'm afraid the board felt that Tom Henderson... No way! That guy is a wanker. Yep, 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 I hear you. We decided fairly and squarely that Tom Henderson... Oh, no, no, I hear you. must be joking. He's a wanker. I personally would have preferred Tom Harbison. Oh, no. But after a lot of discussion, uh, particularly with my uh, senior colleagues, um, we did feel that Tom Henderson... Oh, no, I do realise that uh, most of you would have preferred Tom Benderson. Oh, no, not well, him. He said Tom Benderson. Uh, but at least we can look on the bright side. It could have been worse. It could have been Mandy Ward. Hockta, hockta, hockta. <laughs> it's daft, but it's really, really well done. I'm surprised you didn't pick the no wanking in the office clip. That was a good one as well, when they suddenly instigated a new rule. And I suppose at the time in the 90s, the parallel would have been, we're not going to allow smoking in the office anymore. And it was, we're not going to allow wanking in the office. And they were all complaining, saying, remember when we gave up wanking for a week for charity and productivity really dropped? It's going to be a disaster for the company if you don't let us wank. Someone held up their facts that got stuck together. (laughs) The series was well directed as well. The first series was directed by co-creator Graham Linehan, of whom more later. But he wasn't involved in the second series at all. But I don't have a lot to say about Big Train, to be honest, other than it was a very funny show. Very funny show, vastly underrated. Yeah, I I can't make great claims to it having um, reinvented the form or made us more aware of social norms, situations, multicultural identities. I can't make any claim for it doing anything particularly new. And of course, I can't say that it really captured the nation and put characters and catchphrases into our heads that we'll live with forever because it didn't do any of those things. But it really made me laugh. I think those of us who have seen it and enjoyed it, it's a show that we we cherish. Yeah. Even if it doesn't get the commission, I would like to invite all six of our listeners to check out old episodes of Big Train. Definitely. There's also a sketch where Kevin Eldon plays Dexie's Midnight Runner, lead singer Kevin Rowland as Frankenstein, <laughs> reanimated from the dead. And as a huge Dexie's fan, that's always going to be a big tick in my box as well. Absolutely. I know how much you love Dexies. So I commend Big Train to you. You'll be lucky to get it commissioned, but that's not because it's a bad show. It is very funny. You get four chances at the commission, so what's your final show? 
The final show I'm going to pitch today is Little Britain. Huge show. So let me take you back in time. It was a huge show. The first episode was directed by Graham Linehan, of whom more later. But the alternative comedy movement had started long before that. It developed alongside punk as a reaction to the racist and sexist comedy of the 1970s, the likes of Bernard Manning. And alternative comedy forced comedians to be more inventive and creative and think of ways to be funny without resorting to cheap stereotypes and, and insults. Yeah. Alexi Sale was the exemplar of those early days of alternative comedy. Not Ben Elton. Ben Elton was there and obviously was very important to shows like The Young Ones, but clearly from how he's lived his life since then, he didn't really have the, the zeal for what alternative comedy was supposed to be about. No. But he, he's back on Channel 4 doing alternative comedy now, to be fair. This is true. But no, I don't think he was a true believer in the political and artistic enterprise. Whereas Alexi Sale most certainly was. Yeah, Alexi Sale still lives by his morals and beliefs to this day. Yeah. During the 1990s, the idea seemed to take hold that political correctness had won and that sexism and racism had largely been defeated. Therefore, it was okay to make racist and sexist jokes again, but this time supposedly under a layer of irony. So what's funny isn't the racist joke itself. It's the fact that we all know it's wrong to be racist, and so there's a transgressive shock value in being racist, but no harm done. Yes. Utter bullshit, of course. Some examples of that, David Baddiel blacking up on Fantasy Football League. He did that? Regularly. Even Chris Morris, one of the most thoughtful and intelligent people in comedy, he blacked up once on The Day Today, which is your favourite show. It is my favourite show, and I was going to ask you specifically about that sketch. It's the Rock TV sketch, isn't it? And when he was Fair playing you. Fur Q. Uzi lover. Yes. I just don't think there's any justification for it. And I'm a huge fan of Chris Morris and of, of the day-to-day. I would be really interested to hear what he now has to say about that. But frankly, it's nothing but blackface. Well, indeed. And look, I'm not going to defend blackface, obviously. Yeah. But of course, the target of that sketch was what MTV Europe was like in the mid-90s. And Morris played every character in it. But obviously, we can now see that blacking up for Fur Q was a poor decision. I mean, he should have just used another performer for Fur Q. Yeah, or played him ironically as a shit white boy rapper. There are some things which just aren't worth the joke you're trying to make. True, true. So this was the context in which Little Britain was born in the early 2000s. And it definitely grabbed attention. It definitely grabbed laughs. It was hugely popular. And it came from the perspective not of 1970s racist and sexist comedians, but of people who'd been through the alternative comedy movement, had been through that step change where all of a sudden it was like these things are acceptable as long as there's a layer of irony to it. Even the likes of Chris Morris are doing it, although only really on that one occasion. And I'm sure he would make a defence that what he was trying to do was more thoughtful than some of the crass stuff that followed it. But nonetheless, an environment was set whereby some frankly racist, sexist and classist sketches were back in the mainstream. Without question. And on Little Britain, we see Matt Lucas and David Williams, very talented writers and performers. Yeah. Both white, both male, both privately educated. And we see them performing in blackface or we see them playing reprehensible and irresponsible working class women. I'm not accusing either of them of being racists. I don't believe that they are. I'm not accusing them of being misogynists or of being classist. But the effect of some of their humour was all of those things. And both Lucas and Williams have acknowledged that society's moved on. They've said they wouldn't do things like that. Now, in some cases, they've apologised for the sketches that they did do. Yes. There was a moment... 
after George Floyd was killed, when more of us than before started listening to the experience of black people. Nowhere near enough, but more than we had up to that point. And I'm talking about us as the audience, not as the performers, that we hadn't thought about it from this perspective before or not given it enough thought. And in that moment, after George Floyd was killed, lots of comedy episodes were removed from streaming services. Yeah. Including episodes of loads of shows that I really like. It's always sunny in Philadelphia, where the whole point of the show is that the characters are horrible idiots. And so when they black up, the joke is they are horrible idiots and this is a terrible thing to do. But, you know, it's just not necessary for us to dabble or indeed plunge into racism to get laughs. Alexis Hale wouldn't do that. So remember Alexis Hale and do better. Yes. I mean, I agree with everything you've said, obviously. It's interesting in the specific case of Little Britain that March 2020, we go into lockdown. And then in an effort to lift people's spirits, the BBC organises their big night in. Obviously, it's raising money for charity at the same time. Yeah. And they get back Lucas and Williams to do some Little Britain. And it's done remotely and they're doing it with props that they can find in their houses. And they acknowledge during that actually one character that they wouldn't do anymore, Emily Howard. The character that in the show was described as a rubbish transvestite, which is extremely problematic for all sorts of reasons in this day and age. Absolutely. But then, what, six weeks later, George Floyd was murdered? And as you say, there was this realisation that a whole load of things that we'd all found funny contain things that are not okay. I loved Little Britain. I've got the whole series on DVD. I went to see it live. But there's stuff in there that really is not right. And in a purely broadcasting sense, it's interesting how it went in a matter of weeks from isn't this great that there's more Little Britain to actually thinking about what's right and wrong. Yep. But neither of them's been cancelled. No. And I think that's that's a really important point to make because th- these debates get wrapped up in this sense of, oh, somebody makes one mistake once and they can never work again. And that's just not true. The, the offending sketches have been removed, but nobody's stopping these people from making a living or carrying on with their lives in any way. They, they've no. apologised. The episodes have been removed. And, you know, we move on and we try to learn from what we try to do better in future. I think, yeah, in the case of Little Britain, they did edits of those shows and they were then made available again on iPlayer. It's their follow-up show, Come Fly With Me. That'll never get repeated. Yeah. And that's a really interesting one as well. The first episode of that went out on Christmas Day. You know, it was a huge deal in, in the BBC schedule that they'd got them to make another series. And then they have characters in that that are overtly racist. You have them blacking up, browning up for different characters. I suppose you could argue that there's the counterpoint that one of the main white characters in it is an immigration officer and they play him as racist. Yeah. I don't want to libel every immigration officer, but this particular immigration officer was, was obviously showing the institutionalised racism that obviously exists in many places in this country. Yeah. But does that make up for the other sketches that they were doing as part of that? No, it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, uh, that show was just a misfire in, in so, so many ways. And I'm, I'm sure that they would acknowledge that now. Yeah. Yeah, lots of shows were removed from streaming services around that time. One show was an episode of The IT Crowd, written by Graeme Linehan, of whom more later. That episode was removed because it had a crass plotline making fun of a trans woman. 
And that brings us back again to what you're saying about Little Britain and its rubbish transvestite sketches. I think transphobia is perhaps subtly different in this context from racism, sexism and homophobia. Because with those bigotries, we kidded ourselves that we defeated the bigots and therefore you could make jokes about this. Whereas with transphobia, it's like we hadn't even realised transphobia was an issue yet. We hadn't had that reckoning. And therefore, we hadn't realised there were real people being marginalised and bullied and humiliated. And that brings us back to Graham Linehan. Yes. Of whom I will say he's been mentioned a lot in this episode, which tells us that he helped create some very good comedy back in the old days. I don't know where he is right now and I don't give a shit. No, I don't give a shit either. That's enough about him. Yes. I put Little Britain in the mix this week, so I should focus briefly on what's good about it, but nah, it's not going to win, so I won't bother. David Williams and Matt Lucas have both done other things that might eventually get a place on cracking TV. Rock Profile, by any chance? Rock Profile was really good, or what Matt Lucas did as George Dawes with Reeves and Mortimer. Yeah, that was good. Or even what David Williams has been doing on some of the talent shows when he's known he's being recorded and he's not just privately saying rude things about the contestants. Yeah, you should realise that mic can always be on. So they might yet get themselves a place in cracking TV. I'm sure they're extremely bothered about whether they will or not. But look, I'm not seriously trying to put Little Britain in, but I will say there were good sketches and I'll leave you with one of those. Hello, are you looking for anything in particular? Yes, I was wondering whether you had any pirate memory games suitable for children between the ages of four and eight. Er, I'll just have a look. I can't see any here. At one moment. Margaret! Margaret! Yes? There's a gentleman here who wants to know we've got any pirate memory games. Ages four to... Ages four to eight. We should have some up by the farm toys. Oh, yes. Here we are. Pieces of eight. A pirate memory game, ages four to eight. Match the pirates and find the treasure. Have you got any other pirate memory games? Um, one moment. Margaret! Margaret! What? Have we got any other pirate memory games? I think that's the only one they do. She says she thinks that's the only one they do. What's wrong with that one? What's wrong with that one? I wanted something a little less piratey. He wanted something a little less piratey! Is there a shop near here that specialises in pirate memory games? Margaret! Margaret! Is there a shop that specialises in pirate memory games? Near here. Near here? I don't think there are any in the local area, no. She says she doesn't think there are any in the local area, no. OK, I'll just wait. (laughs) I wanted something a little less piratey. OK, I'll wait. (laughs) It's excellent. Yes. So all four of my choices and your choice came from the BBC. Yeah. And there were loads of other BBC shows that we could have thrown in there. Limmy's Show, French and Saunders, The Real McCoy. You know, I could have spent a long time talking about BBC sketch shows alone. Outside the BBC, I could have brought in from Channel 4, Smack the Pony, absolutely. Absolutely, you could. French and Saunders, we can obviously talk about when we do a double act show. Yeah, that's true. I'm struggling to think of an ITV sketch show that would deserve a place here. There was Spitting Image, of course, but I think we'll save that for Satire Week. ITV did have The Sketch Show with Lee Mack and Tim Vine. That was good. I don't remember that very well. Maybe it was excellent, but it didn't strike a huge chord with me. But why is it that the BBC has been better at this than everybody else? Is it because the licence fee means they could afford to take risks and indeed were obliged to take risks and sketch shows are an inherently risky prospect? I mean, of course, the BBC has Radio 4 that it can use as a training ground for sketch shows. 
And what's the future of sketch shows? Is it a genre that's going to suffer because of the economics of the streaming age? Yeah, I mean, it's a genre that I worry may not remain affordable for the traditional broadcasters. I mean, it is an expensive business. I mean, obviously, there are examples of sketch shows that it's just a couple of people and they're working at it on their own. But, you know, a lot of these shows require quite a big writing team. It's a big cast. And there is no guarantee that it'll just be popular off the blocks. It is risky, and even the best sketch shows are a bit hit and miss occasionally. There's actually a sketch in the Mitchell and Webb look, which takes the mickey out of that very idea, which sort of says, when you make a sketch show, why don't you just not do the miss bits and just leave in the hits? Yeah. Because it's it's not as simple as that. And I guess the traditional broadcasters, it's harder and harder for them to invest in something like that and end up with a flop on their hands, I suppose. Look at when James Corden and Matthew Horne did a sketch show. That was terrible. And I, I know that people give James Corden a hard time. I personally think he's talented, but that show that they did was rotten. But it had a very successful proven duo. Yeah, with proven chemistry from Gavin and Stacey. And yet it's still bombed. It is a very risky form. And maybe you're right, the traditional broadcasters might not continue to do it. If they don't, is it something the streaming giants will want to do? You, you can't imagine any of them doing a British sketch show. That would be very surprising. No. And I think even even the venerable Saturday Night Live, and we'll have to talk about American late night TV at some point. Yeah. But will SNL go beyond its 50th season? I'd like to think it would, but it's got this big anniversary coming up very soon, and it would be a natural point to finish it. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Absolutely. But this week, you're the person pitching a sketch show. Just to help me work out if you're a suitable producer of a sketch show, I've got a little quiz for you. We started with The Far Show. Mark Williams from The Far Show appeared in an early 90s advert for pensions. What was his character's catchphrase? I've absolutely no idea. We want to be together. Oh, I remember that. I want to be a tree and all of that. Yeah, 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 yeah I remember those. Then we had Goodness Gracious Me. Mira Soyal and Sanjeev Bhaskar would go on to star in The Kumars at number 42. Yes. The Kumars appeared in the 2003 comic relief single Spirit in the Sky. But who performed it? Was it Gareth Gates? It was Gareth Gates. Then Big Train. Mark Heap appeared on which 80s variety game show as part of the act, The Two Marks? I don't know, but the only thing I can think of that would fit that description would be 3-2-1. And you'd be right, it's 3-2-1. So you're two for three with one more to go. So Little Britain. And we've already mentioned Rock Profile. The seminal Rock Profile, I think. Yeah. A series that Williams and Lucas starred in prior to Little Britain. Who presented it? Uh, That was Jamie Squeakston. And for a bonus point, what's Shirley Bassey's catchphrase? She haven't got the range! Absolutely. Very well done. You got four out of five there with the bonus point. Okay, so I've got a chance of getting the commission. You've got a chance, but it's going to be tough. So, you've brought The Far Show, Goodness Gracious Me, Big Train and Little Britain. Some strong contenders in there. Yes, but you're up against Monty Python's Flying Circus. Yeah, shit. If I give the commission to one of your shows, you'll achieve fame and fortune. But if I give it to Monty Python, you will have to leave here in disgrace. Yes, yes, I know the format. I'm ready to give you my decision. You've brought some interesting shows for me to consider. Big Train, it's a wonderful show that's definitely got to be shortlisted. It should have had more popularity than it did, and we could potentially make that happen if we commissioned it for our channel. 
the fast show though i was being a bit awkward earlier saying oh isn't it just catchphrases i mean it is of course a very very funny show very popular show i think it would do really well on the channel goodness gracious me a very funny show and i'm only going to consider it as a comedy show i'm not going to consider the bigger picture piece that we talked about earlier but on just those comedy grounds it obviously is a very very strong show Little Britain, I am going to consider some of the wider issues because I think you expressed them very well. And although it was a show I loved, I think it is a show that we do now have to think about. You're absolutely right that we shouldn't write off Lucas and Williams as a result of some of the sketches that perhaps aren't quite as appropriate as we might all have thought they were 15 years ago. I think nonetheless, there are enough sketches in that show that are problematic and the time editing the show to uh, fit our channel, it's going to be a long edit, it's going to be a late edit, and I think for that reason alone, it wouldn't be appropriate to commission Little Britain. Okay. So, I think of your other three shows, probably the one that, that I would shortlist would be Big Train. Okay. It features comedy royalty. Yeah, absolutely. Incredibly funny show, but it's against Python. Yeah, okay. And could you have had Big Train without Python? Almost certainly not. I I think the comparison between any two of the sketch shows that we talked about today is strongest when it comes to Python versus Big Train because Big Train was all about these injections of the surreal into normal cultural life and that's exactly what Monty Python's underlying big idea was. Exactly. So why am I going to pick Big Train over Monty Python? Well, the only thing I will say before you make your decision is I think if you sat a random member of the viewing public down now in front of either Monty Python's Flying Circus or Big Train, they would laugh more often watching Big Train. I'm not sure I agree. And in any case, even if that were true, Python is the daddy of the shows. So therefore, I'm going to have to say to you, This pitch is no more. No! It has ceased to be. (laughs) It has expired and gone to meet its maker. Bereft of life, your pitch rests in peace. This is an X-pitch. Would you kindly leave my office? Okay, I accept your decision and I apologise for wasting your time. Well, now John has gone, I'll have to close the show on my own. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Cracking TV and you agree with my commission. Do let us know. Cracking TV was produced and presented by me, Luke Sluman, and the humiliated John Furlong. Our rather marvellous theme tune was written and performed by Simon McInerney. Luke and John Cracking TV is an IHOG factual entertainment production. It's time to change the channel to Luke and John Cracking TV. Luke and John Cracking TV.